Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen, Volume 1, Chapter 15. Previously on Northanger Abbey, we have met Catherine Moreland, who is 17, naive, lives in the middle of nowhere with a very large family, goes with Mr. and Mrs. Allen on a trip to Bath, where she meets Mr. Tilney and is immediately crushing on him. Then he disappears off the face of the earth, and she meets Mrs. Thorpe and her three daughters, the eldest of whom is Isabella, and they become instant besties. Mr. Tilney remains out, uh, out of sight, and... The brothers show up. Isabella's brother and Catherine's brother come together and it's immediately clear that Isabella and James Moreland, who is Catherine's brother, are into each other. There's a thing going on and it's also pretty clear that Isabella's brother, John Thorpe, is into Catherine but Catherine is not into him back and he's also the worst and we don't like him. So we meet the brothers and then Mr. Tilney comes back and Mr. Thorpe proves he's the worst by getting in the way and making Catherine dance with him when she would much rather be dancing with Mr. Tilney. Poor Catherine. She goes on a carriage ride with Mr. Thorpe and Isabella and her brother. And Mr. Thorpe continues to be the worst and obnoxious and she doesn't have a great time. And the friendship between her and Isabella seems to be going down as she's now becoming friends with Miss Tilney, who's Mr. Tilney's sister. And we have a second dance with Mr. Tilney. Again, cute and flirty. Love it. She sets up a carriage ride, or a walk with the Tilneys, but then the Thorpes show up and convince her to go on a carriage ride with them instead. They kind of trick her. They lie to her about where the Tilneys are, and she's very embarrassed and very apologetic. She finds Mr. Tilney later at the theater and apologizes to him about it. And they set up their walk again. The Thorpes try to convince her to blow off the Tilneys yet again. And Thorpe even goes so far as to go tell Miss Tilney that he's got a message from Catherine that she can't go on the walk with Miss Tilney because she has to go on a carriage ride with Mr. Thorpe and that they should go on the walk a different day very high school and Catherine gets very upset so runs after them and let, after the Tilneys and lets them know that no Mr. Thorpe did not have a message from her and he was lying and so the walk takes place and she has a really good time another fun entertaining conversation proving Mr. Tilney is so much more fun than Mr. Thorpe and the care but the carriage ride does go forward with the Thorpes bringing one of their other sisters instead of Catherine and that is where we have left it off, coming into chapter 15, the final chapter of volume one. Very exciting. Here we go. Early the next day, a note from Isabella speaking peace and tenderness in every line and entreating the immediate presence of her friend on a matter of the utmost importance, hastened Catherine, in the happiest state of confidence and curiosity, to Edgar's buildings. The two youngest Miss Thorpes were by themselves in the parlour, and, on Anne's quitting it to call her sister, Catherine took the opportunity of asking the other for some particulars of their yesterday's party. Maria desired no greater pleasure than to speak of it, and Catherine immediately learnt that it had been altogether the most delightful scheme in the world— 
that nobody could imagine how charming it had been and that it had been more delightful than anybody could conceive. Such was the information of the first five minutes. The second unfolded thus much in detail, that they had driven directly to the York Hotel, ate some soup, and bespoke an early dinner, walked down to the pump room, tasted the water, and laid out some shillings in purses and spars, then sojourned to eat ice at a pastry cook's, and hurrying back to the hotel, swallowed their dinner in haste to prevent being in the dark, and then had a delightful drive back. Only the moon was not up, and it rained a little, and Mr. Moreland's horse was so tired he could hardly get it along. Catherine listened with a heartfelt satisfaction. It appeared that Blaise Castle had never been thought of, and, as for all the rest, there was nothing to regret for half an instant. Mariah's intelligence concluded with a tender effusion of pity for her sister Anne, whom she represented as insupportably cross from being excluded the party. She will never forgive me, I am sure, but you know, how could I help it? John would have me go, for he vowed he would not drive her, because she had such thick ankles. I dare say she will not be in good humor again this month, but I am determined I will not be cross. It is not a little matter that puts me out of temper. Isabella now entered the room with so eager a step, and a look of such happy importance, as engaged all her friends' notice. Mariah, without ceremony, sent away, and Isabella, embracing Catherine, thus began. Yes, my dear Catherine, it is so indeed. Your penetration has not deceived you. Oh, that arched eye of yours! It sees through everything! Catherine replied, only by a look of wondering ignorance. "'Nay, my beloved, sweetest friend,' continued the other, "'compose yourself. I am amazingly agitated. As you perceive, let us sit down and talk in comfort. Well, and so you guessed at the moment you had my note? Sly creature! Oh, my dear Catherine, you alone who know my heart can judge of my present happiness. Your brother is the most charming of men. I only wish I were more worthy of him.' But what will your excellent father and mother say? Oh, heavens, when I think of them, I am so agitated. Catherine's understanding began to awake. An idea of the truth suddenly darted into her mind, and, with the natural blush of so new an emotion, she cried out, Good heaven! My dear Isabella, what do you mean? Can you, can you really be in love with James? This bold surmise, however, she soon learnt, comprehended but half the fact. The anxious affection, which she was accused of having continually watched in Isabella's every look and action, had, in the course of their yesterday's party, received the delightful confession of an equal love. Her heart and faith were alike engaged to James. Never had Catherine listened to anything so full of interest, wonder, and joy. Her brother and her friend engaged? New to such circumstances, the importance of it appeared unspeakably great, and she contemplated it as one of those grand events of which the ordinary course of life can hardly afford a return. The strength of her feelings she could not express. The nature of them, however, contented her friend. The happiness of having such a sister was their future effusion, and the fair ladies mingled in embraces of tears of joy. Delighting, however, as Catherine sincerely did in the prospect of their connection, it must be acknowledged that Isabella far surpassed her in tender anticipations. You will be so infinitely dearer to me, my Catherine, than either Anne or Maria. 
I feel that I shall be so much more attached to my dear Morland's family than to my own. This was a pitch of friendship beyond Catherine. You are so like your dear brother, continued Isabella, that I quite doted on you from the first moment I saw you. But so it always is with me. The first moment settles everything. The very first day that Morland came to us last Christmas, the very first moment I beheld him, my heart was irrevocably gone. I remember I wore my yellow gown, with my hair done up in braids, and when I came into the drawing-room and John introduced him, I thought I never saw anybody so handsome before. Here Catherine secretly acknowledged the power of love, for though exceedingly fond of her brother and partial to all his endowments, she had never in her life thought of him handsome. I remember, too, Miss Andrews drank tea with us that evening and wore her puce-colored sarcenet, and she looked so heavenly that I thought your brother must certainly fall in love with her. I could not sleep a wink all night for thinking of it. Oh, Catherine, the many sleepless nights I have had on your brother's account! I would not have you suffer half what I have done. I am grown wretchedly thin, I know, but I will not pain you by describing my anxiety. You have seen enough of it. I feel that I have betrayed myself perpetually, so unguarded in speaking of my partiality for the church. But my secret I was always sure would be safe with you. Catherine felt that nothing could have been safer, but ashamed of an ignorance little expected, she dared no longer contest the point, nor refuse to have been as full of arch penetration and affectionate sympathy as Isabella chose to consider her. Her brother, she found, was preparing to set off with all speed to Fullerton, to make known his situation and ask consent, and here was a source of some real agitation to the mind of Isabella. Catherine endeavoured to persuade her, as she was herself persuaded, that her father and mother would never oppose their son's wishes. "'It is impossible,' said she, "'for parents to be more kind or more desirous of their children's happiness. I have no doubt of their consenting immediately.' Morland says exactly the same, replied Isabella, and yet I dare not expect it. My fortune will be so small. They never can consent to it. Your brother, who might marry anybody. Here Catherine again discerned the force of love. Indeed, Isabella, you are too humble. The difference of fortune can be nothing to signify. Oh, my sweet Catherine, in your generous heart, I know it would signify nothing. But we must not expect such disinterestedness in many. As for myself, I am sure I only wish our situations were reversed. Had I the command of millions, were I mistress of the whole world, your brother would be my only choice. This charming sentiment, recommended as much by sense as novelty, gave Catherine a most pleasing remembrance of all the heroines of her acquaintance and she thought her friend never looked more lovely than in uttering the grand idea. "'I am sure they will consent,' was her frequent declaration. "'I am sure they will be delighted with you.' "'For my own part,' said Isabella, "'my wishes are so moderate that the smallest income in nature would be enough for me. Where people are really attached, poverty itself is wealth. Grandeur I detest. I would not settle in London for the universe.' A cottage in some retired village would be ecstasy. There are some charming little villas about Richmond. Richmond, cried Catherine, you must settle near Fullerton. You must be near us. I am sure I shall be miserable if we do not. 
If I can but be near you, I shall be satisfied. But this is idle talking. I will not allow myself to think of such things till we have your father's answer. Moreland says that by sending it tonight to Salisbury, we may have it tomorrow. Tomorrow! I know I shall never have courage to open the letter. I know it will be the death of me. A reverie succeeded this conversation, and when Isabella spoke again, it was to resolve on the quality of her wedding gown. Their conference was put an end to by the anxious young lover himself, who came to breathe his parting sigh before he set off to Wiltshire. Catherine wished to congratulate him, but knew not what to say, and her eloquence was only in her eyes. From them, however, the eight parts of speech shone out most expressively, and James could combine them with ease. Impatient for the realization of all that he hoped at home, his adieus were not long, and they would have been yet shorter had he not been frequently detained by the urgent entreaties of his fair one that he would go. Twice was he called almost from the door by her eagerness to have him gone. Indeed, Morland, I must drive you away. Consider how far you have to ride. I cannot bear to see you linger so. For heaven's sake, waste no more time there. Go, go, I insist on it. So chapter 15 starts with a kind of reconciliation with Isabella, because the last time we met Isabella, if you remember, she was trying to convince Catherine to go on the ride with them, the carriage ride, and she was trying to manipulate her, and they she kind of had a temper tantrum and was saying that Catherine was not her true friend, and she was throwing her off for the Tilneys, but now we are best friends again, and we that whole thing has been forgotten, as we get this letter sent to Catherine immediately and so Catherine comes to see them at their lodgings and the first thing we get is this conversation with um, the younger sister Mariah who is the one who went on the trip in Catherine's place because another woman had to go or it wouldn't have been proper for Isabella to go with just her brother and James there needed to be another lady present which is why Mariah had to go. And apparently, according to Mariah, the reason he, she was chosen instead of Anne is because Anne has thick ankles. Which is such a dumb thing to say in general. And I'm not sure what the size of ankles is really supposed to be. And with their dresses so long, you barely ever see their ankles anyway. So the whole thing is ridiculous. Um, but it also, I think, is just pointing out again the crassness and rudeness of John Thorpe for having said it and also for his sister Mariah for repeating it and not being embarrassed to say it and just kind of saying it as truth it's kind of showing this whole family just ugh, nails on a chalkboard this whole family is not great and little things like that where Mariah just very easily says her her sister Anne has thick ankles and that's why John John didn't want to drive her and that's completely normal and acceptable and nothing wrong with that. Makes me not like her. Makes me not like her brother. The whole family just seems off. But in any case, Anne is apparently mad about that. Which makes sense with what we saw in the last chapter where Anne is the one who was pretending that she was perfectly fine with not going on the trip and thought that the trip would be so horrible but was so bad at the acting of it that even Catherine was picking up on it and didn't quite believe her that she was okay and was able to tell that 
you know, Anne wanted to be able to go on the carriage ride, but there wasn't room for her because both of the little carriages only take two people. So poor Anne got left behind and is obviously mad about it, which is all Mariah wants to talk about. The other interesting thing we get out of Mariah here, in my opinion, is about where she's using that over-the-top dramatic language, same as Isabella does about how delight it was altogether the most delightful scheme in the world. Nobody could imagine how charming it had been. It had been more delightful than anybody could conceive. And she went on like that for five minutes. <laughs> um, just that it was the most wonderful and the best trip and everything the most wonderful in the world. And then she describes what she, they did, which was basically ate, wandered around, drank some water, bought some purses and spars, ate some ice cream, had dinner, and drove back. So they literally just ate and shopped and then went back again. And Catherine is happy with that in that it seems like they had a good time, so she's happy about that. But also that she they didn't actually go to the castle, which is the only reason she even wanted to go, so she didn't miss anything. And I think it's kind of nice to... It's very humanizing to see that even though Catherine felt sure that she, did, she didn't want to go on the trip and she, rather, she would rather walk with the Tilneys, she still had a little bit of reservations about it because she did want to see the castle. And we're seeing a little bit of that almost selfishness. I don't think that it's, I'm not using that term in a negative way though. I think self-interest can be a good thing. Like you want to promote yourself and make sure that you yourself are having a good time. I don't see that as inherently a negative thing. So Catherine wanting to have had this trip to Blaze Castle, she is relieved to find out that that's not what they did and so she didn't actually miss out on anything so it's kind of that FOMO attitude she's realizing that fear of missing out she's not she's realizing that she didn't miss out this trip is not something that she wanted to do anyway doesn't sound like um it had anything that she particularly wanted so life is good she didn't miss anything then Isabella comes in she kicks her sister out of the room and yeah Mariah was was without ceremony sent away. So Mariah is sent off and she goes into Catherine to let her know that she is engaged to Catherine's brother, James, which Catherine is completely shocked by. But they have this conversation where they talk kind of against each other again, where Isabella is convinced that Catherine must know that she's in love with James and has been slyly watching her this whole time and all their interactions and knowing that, you know, Isabella was in love with her brother. She says that she's got the penetration and that arch eye and that sly creature and you alone who know my heart. She uses all these phrases that she's trying to say that Catherine knew that Isabella was in love with James. And kind of on the back end, Catherine is replying with a wondering ignorance and her understanding began to awake after like two paragraphs of, Kath of Isabella talking about it. And the truth suddenly darted into her mind. So it's one of those things again where Isabella has hinted at this throughout the book so far that Catherine knows something about her, that she's given herself away, she's asking Catherine not to betray her. So there's been these kind of implications throughout, and she's doing it again, where she's implying that Catherine knows about the situation, even though Catherine 
is very clear in her own mind that she does not understand because again Catherine is very naive because we I think it's pretty clear to the reader that this is going on this whole time and I think everybody else probably sees it too so I actually don't think that Isabella is wrong to assume that people must notice and that Catherine must have noticed because I do think that it was glaringly obvious to everybody but Catherine so this is not an anything against Isabella per se because I don't think she's wrong to have assumed that Catherine should have known except for that it proves that she doesn't know Catherine which I think is also true that even though they are declared to be best friends I don't think Isabella knows anything about Catherine really um, and this kind of proves it as well so I don't think it's but in general I don't think Isabella is wrong that the idea that the two of them were an item per se is glaringly obvious everybody can see it but Catherine can't see it because she's so naive about the whole situation. But Catherine finally figures it out and says, Good heaven, my dear Isabella, what do you mean? Can you, can you really be in love with James? So she's shocked. She's seeing this as like a new declaration from Isabella, while Isabella feels like it's just confirming what Catherine already knew. So it just shows again that they're never on solid footing with each other. They're never really talking in the same wavelength. They do not get each other at all, even though they're declared to be best friends. And when after Catherine asks if she's in love with James, she realizes that, no, they're not just in love. They are engaged. And James is about to go off to Fullerton, they're, where they're from, to get her his parents' permission. And this is really important in this time period, a little digression, I suppose, about how things worked back then. There's a couple issues. One, you're not recognized as a full adult and legally allowed to marry until you're 21. And James is under 21. I think he's 18 or 19, probably. He might be older than that. But he's in university still. And I, I think that the implication is that he's under 21 from some stuff we get a little bit later in the chapter. I'm assuming he's under 21. Um, so he would legally need his parents' permission to get married. And so would Isabella because she's probably under 21 as well. But nobody seems to be concerned about Isabella's mother giving her consent. Everything seems fine on that end. Um, so James does need to get his parents' permission. And that's one of those things that you'll read in Regency novels of people like uh, eloping off to Gretna Green in Scotland. One of the reasons for that is that you can get married in Scotland without parental permission. And those marriages are still legally binding. It's not something you can legally do in England if you're under 21, which is when you reach your majority, um, as the term goes. The other aspect of it that's important is that James doesn't have any money and will need settlements from his parents to make a marriage possible for him to be able to support himself and support a wife and have a home and that sort of thing. Um, so they are hopeful that James's parents will approve of the match so that they legally can get married, but also provide a way to support them in that marriage. So that's a little aside, not necessarily something that's in the book, but when they're talking about James going off to get permission, those are the things that he needs. He needs the legal permission, but he also needs the money that the parents would give as part of their approval.
And Catherine is just overjoyed about this. It says, never had Catherine listened to anything so full of interest, wonder, and joy. So she's just over the moon, loving this, and felt like this was the happiest thing in the world. However, delighting, however, as Catherine sincerely did in the prospect of the connection, it must be acknowledged that Isabella far surpassed her in tender anticipations. So no, no matter how excited Catherine sincerely is, Isabella's words of satisfaction and anticipation are much stronger than Catherine's can be. And I think you can read this as being Catherine is very happy and sincere in her happiness, but Isabella is overly dramatic and just with the history of her and her family, maybe not quite as sincere. That's me reading into it a little bit, but I don't think too over the top of a, of a conclusion to reach. But Isabella goes off about her own sisters in a way that I find rather rude, because she says, you will be so infinitely dearer to me, my Catherine, than either Anne or Maria. I feel that I shall be so much more attached to my dear Moreland's family than to my own. Which is just like rude. Just throw away your own family and cling on to Moreland's instead. I mean, come on. You grew up with Anne and Maria and you're going to say that you have no affection for them at all and you like Catherine better when she has shown throughout that she doesn't really know Catherine in any real way. You know, she's just somebody that Isabella clung on to probably because of the relationship to James from the get-go and has just kind of dragged along and used as a friend. But I don't feel any real friendship between them. And I bet that that Isabella would be hard-pressed to name like three facts about Catherine and her life to any real degree. So, but Isabella is so excited and is saying that she is more excited about Catherine's family and that Catherine's family will be dearer to her than her than her own biological family is and there's a great line following in Catherine's mind about this which I find to be another little burn by Catherine which I always love to see because we didn't get any of them at the very beginning so I always see it as like some maturity and growth and her ability to look at people and but she says after that that this was a pitch of friendship beyond Catherine Meaning that Catherine would not be equally able to say that I'm going to love your family so much more than my own, even into and beyond my own, because she doesn't particularly like Isabella's sisters, and she really dislikes Isabella's brother. So, <laughs> yeah, she's not able to return that kind of sentiment about being so excited about, you know, loving your family so much. And Isabella continues on about how Catherine's so much like her brother... And that's why I doted on you from the first time I saw you, because you look like him. And But so it always is with me. The first moment settles everything. Um, saying that she was, the first day Moreland came to us last Christmas, she was instantly in love with him. Uh, but she doesn't say anything about him. She just remembers what gown she was wearing and how her hair was done. But she does say that she never saw anybody more handsome than him before. And we get another little burn from Catherine who secretly acknowledged the power of love because even though she's fond of her brother, she had never in her life thought him handsome. <laughs> Poor James to not be thought handsome. But I think that's a pretty reasonable sibling thing to think. That 
I make fun of my brother about that all the time. Well, I mean, not that like he's not handsome specifically, but I've I've had conversations jokingly with his wife of things about that, about like, you're the one who married my brother. Like, what's wrong with you? Jokingly and for fun. But I think that that's a kind of normal sibling ribbing and reaction to have for her to be like, really? You think he's handsome? Okay. <laughs> and then she goes on again about her about herself, about how they had tea with Miss Andrews, her friend, and her friend was so pretty, and she was certain that James must fall in love with her, and she couldn't sleep a wink, and she's had so many sleepless nights, and you have, wouldn't, and I don't want you to suffer what I have suffered, I've had so much anxiety, couldn't eat, I've grown so thin, and I felt like I betrayed myself so much, I was so unguarded in speaking of my partiality, but my secret I was sure would be safe with you. And so she's going on and on again with this overly dramatic language. Isabella is just dramatic about everything and is talking about how much anxiety and stuff she's had and how much suffering she's had dealing with this. Now, if we think about the timeline, I believe we're in the spring now, like late February or early March-ish, maybe? Springtime, I think, based on some of the little things we've seen. And they only met at Christmas. So she met him over the Christmas break. They said the end of it. So that could be very end of December. I don't know how long the break is. Maybe possibly as late as January. So it's now, let's get maybe March at the latest, I believe. So she's known him a total of like two months. But she's been suffering these long agonies over him. And it's also talking about kind of this love at first sight, which just knowing other Austin novels, I don't think Austin is much a fan of the whole concept of love at first sight. So, which, although I guess Catherine kind of had it for Mr. Tilney, but she was not as effusive and really ready to be, it wasn't quite as much love at first sight. She had more of interest at first sight and then got to know him and was interested in him and wanted to see him more. And had a crush on him, but she wouldn't have said she was in love with him from that. I'm pretty sure. In fact, she even had, like, some conversations with Isabella about it and kind of disclaimed the idea that Isabella was saying she was in love with him. And Catherine was like, no, I'm not. Don't say that. I barely know him. I might never see him again. So she had definitely immediate interest in Mr. Tilney, but I don't think it was this, like, declaration of like instant love the way Isabella is portraying her feelings to James and she's again bringing up this idea that Catherine has known about it and she's been so unguarded and unguarded in speaking and portrayed herself perpetually but my secret was always safe with you and Catherine has a line here saying in her head that she felt nothing could have been safer. But ashamed of an ignorance little expected, she dared no longer contest the point. So Catherine is thinking that she has been kind of disclaiming and saying, no, I didn't know about this this whole time. But at this point, she's kind of over being able to tell the truth, saying that she didn't know that this was happening. And is just kind of accepting that Isabella keeps saying that she must have known.
And of course, then Isabella adds to her own drama of the moment by worrying that Catherine and James's parents will not approve of the match, which Catherine quickly is, says, no, you know, my parents are great. They'll, they will be desirous of their children's happiness. I have don't, no doubt of their consenting immediately. And Isabella says, but I don't have any fortune and they can never consent to it. Your brother might marry anybody. And here again we get, here Catherine again discerns the force of love. Meaning to me that again Catherine's like, okay, you're a little, that's a little much. James isn't that big of a catch. I mean, come on. <laughs> Which, but she actually replies with, indeed, Isabella, you are too humble. The difference of fortune can do nothing, can be nothing to signify. And so they're talking a little bit about that. And Isabella again has some of this dramatic language saying that had I the command of millions were I mistress of the whole world, your brother would be my only choice. Which is laying it on a bit thick is all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> but it makes Catherine very happy and makes her think of like heroines in novels who say dramatic things like that. And she thought that her friend had never looked more lovely than in uttering the grand idea. And she says just that they're going to be delighted. My parents are going to be delighted for you. This is wonderful. And then Isabella, on her own, switches the topic over to money. Saying that for my own part, my wishes are so moderate that the smallest income in nature would be enough for me. Where people are really attached, poverty itself is wealth. Grandeur I detest. I would not settle in London for the universe. But maybe Richmond and then... And so it's... It's an interesting thing I think you need to kind of focus in on that Jane is telling us something by the fact that Isabella is switching so quickly. She's gone on and on about how much in love she is and how James is the most handsome man in the world. But then she goes on to being worried about his parents not approving of the match and how she doesn't have any money, which, you know, is implying that all the money would have to come from James, right? And James's family for them to have anything. So that's made very clear in this part that Isabella is depending on James to bring all the money to the match. And then she switches over again to talk about money, about saying that her wishes are moderate, smallest income is fine, I don't want to live in London, but maybe Richmond, which I believe is close to London, so Richmond just seems like an odd choice. But then She's saying, Catherine comes in saying, no, you have to live near Fullerton. And Isabella agrees that, you know, that would be fabulous. She wants to live near Catherine because, again, they're best friends. And Moreland's going home and he'll send a letter that I'll get tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow's, and kind of like, oh, but tomorrow's so far away. It's going to be the death of me. I'll never have the courage to open the letter. And then a slight pause ensues. Catherine I don't think knows how to answer that and Isabella when she spoke again it was to resolve the on the quality of her wedding gown so she moves directly off of that and into her clothes and things so even though she's protesting and saying all this dramatic things she's very easily able to switch topics right over to her wedding gown and then James comes in to say goodbye or as Jane Austen puts it, to breathe his parting sigh before he set off. 
Catherine congratulated him but knew not what to say. And I love this line, and her eloquence was only in her eyes, which I think just paints such a beautiful picture that Catherine is genuinely happy for her brother, genuinely happy about this situation, and is so overflowing with emotion. I think this again, this points out the difference between her and Isabella yet again, because Isabella is just overflowing with this beautiful flowery language all the time. And Catherine isn't, and she doesn't know what to say how to express it but she feels it deeply and truly and it's just coming out her eyes instead and I think it's just such a beautiful thing about Catherine that that's true like you know that the eyes are the windows to the soul kind of concept that she is able to show this real emotion through her eyes and I think it's a nice counterpoint that we should see to Isabella who we never hear of anything of happiness you know, coming out of her eyes or her countenance or anything. It's all her words, but not physically apparent in her face the way it is with Catherine, which I think to me is denoting true emotion versus put on and pretended emotion, which is more what I see from Isabella. So he says goodbye and is impatient to go home and his goodbyes would have been shorter let's see and they would have been yet shorter had he not been frequently detained by the urgent entreaties of his fair one that he would go so again we're seeing this thing of Isabella where her actions and her words are not quite matching up where she keeps telling James to leave to get out of there to hurry up and go but she keeps delaying him by talking to him more and it just seems like a scene that would be in like a sitcom or a rom-com sort of situation where I just imagine him heading for the door and her like talking again and him having to come back. And then he's out the door, but she calls him back. And then he's out the door and then she calls him back. And over and over and over again is kind of the vision I'm seeing in my mind of him trying to leave. And like she's saying that she wants him to leave but she's not allowing him to leave by letting him out the door because she keeps having things to say to him and that's just so Isabella so true to her character and so James is off and then we continue on The two friends, with hearts now more united than ever, were inseparable for the day, and in schemes of sisterly happiness the hours flew along. Mrs. Thorpe and her son, who were acquainted with everything, and who seemed only to want Mr. Moreland's consent to consider Isabella's engagement as the most fortunate circumstance imaginable for their family, were allowed to join their council and add their quota of significant looks and mysterious expressions, to fill up the measure of curiosity to be raised in the unprivileged younger sisters. To Catherine's simple feelings, this odd sort of reserve seemed neither kindly meant nor consistently supported, and its unkindness she would hardly have forborne pointing out had its inconsistency been less their friend. But Anna and Maria soon set her heart at ease by the sagacity of their own I-know-what, and the evening was spent in a sort of war of wit, a display of family ingenuity, on one side in the mystery of an affected secret, and on the other 
of undefined discovery, all equally acute. And so in this section, after James Moreland has left, we have Isabella and Catherine stay, staying together and having an, being inseparable for the rest of the day, the way they were at the beginning of their friendship and haven't been for a little while. And they are spending the day in schemes of sisterly happiness. So they are to be sisters, since Isabella is going to be marrying Catherine's brother. And Mrs. Thorpe and her son are both also acquainted with what's going on and are happy with the engagement and everything seems good. The thing that Catherine's finds odd is that the younger sisters are not told. So Anne and Mariah are the unprivileged younger sisters who don't know what's happening and don't know about the engagement, apparently, um, because she's talking about how Mrs. Mrs. Thorpe, John Thorpe, and Isabella Thorpe all have their quota of significant looks and mysterious expressions to fill up the measure of curiosity to be raised in the unprivileged younger sisters. And Catherine seems to think that this is rude or mean, or she calls it unfriendly. It's, she says it's neither kindly meant nor consistently supported. And in its unkindness, she would hardly have forborn pointing out, had its inconsistency been less their friend. Which, honestly, it took me a long time to figure out what I think this sentence means. And I think I've come to a understanding of what I believe this sentence to mean. But I do find it confusing. So if anybody has some another thought on this and what it could possibly mean, I'm open for other interpretations. But what I am taking this to mean is that there's this odd sort of reserve that doesn't seem kindly meant. So they're not flat out telling the younger sisters that Isabella is engaged to James Moreland. But they're inconsistent about it, so they must be giving enough away so that the younger sisters could tell. Um, and so Catherine would have thought them less kind if they'd been more, if in the inconsistency had been less their friend. So they're, because they're so inconsistent about keeping the secret, the younger sisters do actually know, but it seems to be like a game they're playing. Because the younger sisters are spending the evening saying that they know what's happening. And then there's this sort of war of wit, they call it, where one side is pretending to have this mystery of an affected secret, and on the other side, undefined discovery. And all equally acute. So... Catherine is just seeing this weird dynamic amongst the family where the eldest three, the mom and the oldest sister and the brother are kind of pretending to have a secret. And the younger, younger two daughters are pretending to know what the secret is. And I'm unclear if they actually know, or they just think they know, but it sounds, but I'm, my reading of this is that there's just this really, screwy dynamic in this family that seems very odd which we've kind of gotten hints of this whole time but now having this scene of just them spending the evening alone as a family it just it seems very kind of messed up as a dynamic where the yeah they're just kind of keeping a secret but not really but they're all pretending it's still a secret 
it just seems very untruthful. And but that's all as one with how their characters of in this story have been so far. We just see the whole family not even seeming to be truthful with each other. Or even in this sort of situation, unable to just flat out and clearly talk amongst themselves. That even when it's just them with Catherine, they have to play this game of not really saying what they mean, even if they're not flat out lying. It's just a very strange family scene, in my opinion. And then we move on to the next day. Catherine was with her friend again the next day, endeavoring to support her spirits and while away the many tedious hours before the delivery of the letters. A needful exertion, for as the time of reasonable expectation drew near, Isabella became more and more desponding, and before the letter arrived had worked herself into a state of real distress. But when it did come, where could distress be found? I have had no difficulty in gaining the consent of my kind parents, and am promised that everything in their power shall be done to forward my happiness, were the first three lines, and in one moment all was joyful security. The brightest glow was instantly spread over Isabella's features. All care and anxiety seemed removed. Her spirits became almost too high for control, and she called herself without scruple the happiest of mortals. Mrs. Thorpe, with tears of joy, embraced her daughter, her son, her visitor, and could have embraced half the inhabitants of Bath with satisfaction. Her heart was overflowing with tenderness. It was, dear John, and dear Catherine, at every word, dear Anne, and dear Maria, must immediately be made sharers in their felicity, and two dears at once before the name of Isabella were not more than that beloved child now well earned. John himself was no skulker in joy. He not only bestowed on Mr. Morland the high commendation of being one of the finest fellows in the world, but swore off many sentences in his praise. The letter, when sparing all this felicity, was short, containing little more than this assurance of success, and every particular was deferred till James could write again. But for particulars Isabella could well afford to wait. The needful was comprised in Mr. Morland's promise. His honour was pledged to make everything easy, and by what means their income was to be formed, whether landed property were to be resigned, or funded money made over, was a matter in which her disinterested spirit took no concern. She knew enough to feel secure of an honourable and speedy establishment, and her imagination took a rapid flight over its attendant felicities. She saw herself at the end of a few weeks, the gaze and admiration of every new acquaintance at Fullerton, the envy of every valued old friend in Putney with a carriage at her command, a new name on her tickets, and a brilliant exhibition of hoop rings on her fingers. And so Catherine spends the next day again with Isabella, waiting for the mail to arrive so they can find out her fate. And she's showing real distress and desponding and all upset until the letter shows up and immediately it's just like James and Catherine told Isabella from the beginning that he had no difficulty in gaining the consent of his parents and he's promised that everything in their power shall be done to forward his happiness which means money by the way 
Um, so everything that they can do to forward his happiness means that they will do all they can to make sure that he is able to afford a wife, basically. And everyone is very, very happy about this. All anxiety is gone. Isabella calls herself the happiest of mortals. Mrs. Thorpe is cr crying tears of joy and embracing her daughter, her son, her visitor, and could have embraced half the inhabitants of Bath because of how satisfied she is. She's using dear John, dear Catherine, dear Anne, and dear Mariah, and dear, dear Isabella for her most beloved child. Um, so they're all super excited and happy about this, and it's, again, showing kind of that reading between the lines duplicitousness of them, that they're so excited and so happy and assured and not caring about the particulars, but that's all they can talk about are the particulars, meaning the money. So James was going to write again with the with all the money, but they could afford to wait because with the promise of his father to make everything easy, they were sure that they would get enough money for this to work out and they didn't care and she doesn't care whether the income is to be formed from landed property or funded money. And her disinterested spirit took no concern. She felt sure of a secure and honorable speedy establishment. So, I mean, I don't think it's uncommon of the time. Marriage obviously had financial situations involved in it. It was the one way that women could kind of move up in the world. And you definitely, as a woman, were expected to marry a man who could support you because... You were not allowed to work in any capacity of your own, um, generally, unless you were of the lower classes. But of these more genteel classes, women needed a man to take care of them financially. And so you're expected to marry a man who can do that. So her talking about the money is not like an over-the-top crazy thing. But how she's like keeps kind of bringing up how disinterested she is in it. And how the money doesn't matter to her, but she keeps wanting to talk about the money. Just feels a little off to me. In any case, she feels sure that it's going to happen quickly. And Isabella's imagination took a rapid flight to the attendant Felicities. And she saw herself in a few weeks the gaze, in the gaze and admiration of every new acquaintance at Fullerton. And the envy of all her old friends in Putney. So she's quickly going from her outwards speech is about how in love she is and everything but her mind is going to the admiration of people about her being married the envy of everybody she knows about her being married about having her own carriage a new name on her tickets and brilliant exhibition of hoop rings on her finger so it's all the money stuff and the envy of other people that she's actually thinking about now that we're finally like in her head, which we haven't been in Isabella's head very much. We're just having to take her word for things. And finally, at this at this part of the chapter, we're getting a little bit of narration of the narrator of what Isabella's actually thinking. And what she's thinking about is the envy of everyone she knows, having a carriage, and getting new ring. Um, which I think just is something to make note of. Noted. That's what's actually going on in her head in this moment.
When the contents of the letter were ascertained, John Thorpe, who had only waited its arrival to begin his journey to London, prepared to set off. "'Well, Miss Morland,' said he, on finding her alone in the parlour, "'I am come to bid you good-bye.' Catherine wished him a good journey. Without appearing to hear her, he walked to the window, fidgeted about, hummed a tune, and seemed wholly self-occupied. "'Shall not you be let late at Devizes?' said Catherine. He made no answer, but after a minute's silence burst out with, "'A famous good thing, this marrying scheme, upon my soul! A clever fancy of Morland's and Bell's. What do you think of it, Miss Morland? I say it is no bad notion.' "'I'm sure I think it a very good one.' "'Do you?' "'That's honest. By heavens! I am glad you were no enemy to matrimony, however. "'Did you ever hear the old song, "'Going to one wedding brings on another? "'I say, you will come to Belle's wedding, I hope. "'Yes, I have promised your sister to be with her, if possible.' "'And then, you know,' twisting himself about and forcing a foolish laugh, "'I say, when you know, we may try the truth of this same old song.' "'May we? But I never sing.' "'Well, I wish you a good journey. "'I dine with Miss Tilney to-day, "'and must go now be going home. "'Nay, but there is no such confounded hurry. "'Who knows when we may be together again? "'Not but that I shall be down again "'by the end of a fortnight, "'and a devilish long fortnight it will appear to me.' "'Then why do you stay away so long?' "'replied Catherine, "'finding that he waited for an answer. "'That is kind of you, however. "'Kind and good-natured. "'I shall not forget it in a hurry.' "'But you have more good nature in all that than anybody living, I believe. "'A monstrous deal of good nature. "'And it is not only good nature. "'But you have so much, so much of everything. "'And then you have such... "'Upon my soul, I do not know anybody like you. "'Oh, dear, there are a great many people like me, I dare say. "'Only a great deal better. "'Good morning to you. "'But I say, Miss Morland, I shall come and pay my respects at Fullerton before it is long, "'if not disagreeable.' "'Pray do. My father and mother will be very glad to see you. "'And I hope, I hope, Miss Morland, you will not be sorry to see me.' "'Oh, dear, not at all. There are very few people I am sorry to see. "'Company is always cheerful.' "'That is just my way of thinking. Give me but a little cheerful company. "'Let me only have the company of the people I love. "'Let me only be where I like and with whom I like, and the devil take the rest,' say I. "'And I am heartily glad to hear you say the same.' "'But I have a notion, Miss Morland, you and I think pretty much alike upon most matters.' "'Perhaps we may, but it is more than I ever thought of, and as to most matters. "'To say the truth, there are not many that I know my own mind about. "'By Jove, no more do I. "'It is not my way to bother my brains with what does not concern me. "'My notion of things is simple enough. "'Let me only have the girl I like, say I, with a comfortable house over my head,' "'And what care I for all the rest? "'Fortune is nothing. "'I am sure of a good income of my own. "'And if she had not a penny, why, so much the better.' "'Very true. "'I think like you there. "'If there is a good fortune on one side, "'there can be no occasion for any on the other, "'no matter which has it, so that there is enough. "'I hate the idea of one great fortune looking out for another. "'And to marry for money, I think, the wickedest thing in existence. "'Good day.' "'We shall be very glad to see you at Fullerton, whenever it is convenient.' And away she went. It was not in the power of all his gallantry to detain her longer. With such news to communicate, and such a visit to prepare for, her departure was not to be delayed by anything in his nature to urge. And she hurried away, leaving him to the undivided consciousness of his own happy address, and her explicit encouragement.'
And so Catherine has another conversation with Mr. Thorpe. And as most of her conversations with the Thorpes tend to go, they leave on not the same page, in my opinion. So Catherine is very clearly ready to say goodbye. She comes in and just says, oh, I bid you goodbye, and she's about to leave. But Thorpe doesn't seem to hear her, as he usually does not. He doesn't listen to a thing Catherine says most of the time. So she asks him if he might, he's going to be late, and he makes no answer again, and just is waiting with silence until he bursts out, famous good thing, this marrying scheme, upon my soul. Clever notion. What do you think of it? And so he's asking what she thinks of them getting, of, well, I think that he thinks he's asking how does she feel about the idea of the possibility of her, Catherine, and Mr. Thorpe getting engaged or getting married, where that doesn't even enter into Catherine's mind and she is only thinking about Isabella and James. And so she just says, yeah, marrying's a good thing. I think that would be good for them. But that's why he comes back with, do you? That's honest. By heavens, I'm glad you're no enemy to matrimony. Um, did you ever hear the song about going to one wedding brings on another? You will be coming to Belle's wedding, right? And she says, well, yeah, I'm going to be there. And, you know, and then he says, well, you know, we might try the truth of this same old song. May we? She doesn't get it. So he's again saying we can try the truth of it. So one wedding brings on another. Maybe, you know, we can go to their wedding and then we can get married. And her answer is, but I never sing. So she is taking him at literal words again. Again, her naivete. She doesn't get it. So she is taking him at his literal word that they may try the song, which she is taking to mean they could try to sing a song. But she doesn't sing, so she's not going to sing the song with him. Whereas he's trying to get her to think about the, the actual phrase, going to a wedding brings on another, meaning that after Isabella and James get married, Catherine and John can get married. And so she just says, oh, I never sing. Anyway, goodbye. I gotta go. And he's like, oh, there's no hurry. Who knows when we'll see each other again? It'll be a long time. And she's like, well, then why are you going if it's so bothersome to you? And he takes that as like a, a wish for him to hurry back, which is I don't think how she meant it. It's just that he's complaining that it's going to be a really long fortnight that he's going to have to be gone. And she's just saying, okay, well, then why do you have to be gone so long? Like, what's up with that? And he takes it as, oh, that's so kind. You're wishing me to come back quickly. Which she is not. But they are, again, not really talking to each other in any real way. They're more talking at each other and neither of them is really understanding what the other is saying, which is kind of just how it works with them anyway. So he says that, oh, that's really kind of you and you have such good nature and so much of everything and you have such, and then he stops. Upon my soul, I do not know anybody like you. So what does he mean there? And then you have such, and he just stops. I am implying from the way that they keep talking about the Moreland family and everything, they think she's got money. They think James has got money. So I think that's where my mind goes, that that's what could have been in that gap, is that he's you've got such a good dowry or something along those lines, but he stops himself from saying it. I don't know if that's really implied. That's where my mind goes. 
Because you have so much of everything and you have such... Eh, he could still be just talking about her kind of personality features of how her so she's so good-natured. Um, yeah, he says good-natured multiple times because it's kind. Kind of good-natured. But you're more, you have more good nature than anybody. A monstrous deal of good nature. And it's not only good nature. You have so much, so much of everything. And then you have such, upon my soul, I do not know anybody like you. I don't know. It just seems like he, the reason he hesitates from saying it is he's saying something that she, that he doesn't want to say. That he doesn't think she would appreciate. Which to me makes it think it's money. But it might not be. I don't know. He could be thinking of something else. But she, again, doesn't get the hint and just like, oh, there's a lot of people like me. Anyway, bye. And he keeps her again. Again, she keeps saying goodbye and tries to leave. And then he holds, he kind of like keeps the conversation going. And he's like, so can I come see you at Fullerton? And she's like, yeah, my parents would love to see you. And I think in her mind, it's as a future like brother-in-law type person. Because, you know, they'll want to meet the family of James's soon-to-be wife but he doesn't see it that way and he's like well will you be sorry to see me and she's oh no not at all company's always cheerful so but it seems very impersonal she's not really i think she's just being polite and yes my family would love to see you as a future brother-in-law to my brother and meeting his future wife's family, that's going to be a good thing. So yes, please do come. And so I don't think it's weird that she says, yes, you can come and you should visit. But he is taking it in a different way, saying, oh, yes, I agree. Cheerful company is the best. Let me be only with where I like and with whom I like and the devil take the rest. And, you know, but you and I think pretty much alike on most matters. Again, he's trying to flirt with her. He's not successful because she doesn't get it, but he's trying. And she just says, okay, maybe, but, um, I don't, I mean, I've never thought of it like that. Uh, and I don't actually have a lot of opinions, which is a weird thing to say that there are not many that I know my own mind about. I read it as, like I said, that I don't have that many opinions, really. So I don't know that we can share all these opinions <laughs> on all these different issues. Which is truthful from Catherine, I think, that she really hasn't taken the time to think about a lot of weighty matters to have strong opinions on them. But the idea of just, like, flatly telling people that is a little funny to me. But he, John Thorpe, comes after her, like, with this proof that he is just trying to flirt and be agreeable with her by saying, oh, very true, I think like you there. Um, you know, or no. It's by Jove, no more do I. It is not my way to bother my brains with what does not concern me and my motion, notion of things is simple enough. So he's like trying to be like, yes, we agree again. Again, I agree with you, just like I agree with you on everything. Trying to kind of hammer that point home. And just let me have the girl I like with a comfortable house over my head and what care I for the rest. Fortune is nothing. Again, he's protesting a little too much about how little he cares about fortune. And um, so he doesn't care whether his future wife has any money. And again, he she doesn't get what he's saying and she completely glosses over it and just agrees with the point that, you know, she doesn't 
I hate the idea of one great fortune holding out for another. And to marry for money is the wickedest thing in existence. So she's she's saying that, you know, she agrees that you shouldn't be just holding on for a fortune. Yeah, I agree. You should marry because you like the person, not just because they have money. Okay, bye. And she says, it again. she says, good day again. And then she's finally able to get away. And it was not in the power of all his gallantry to detain her longer. Which means that he tried, in my opinion. He's still trying to get her to get into more conversation with him. But she is finally able to extricate herself and get out of there. Because she had more exciting things to do. She has to run home and so with such news to communicate and such a visit to prepare for. So she's got to run home and tell the Allens about what just happened because there's a lot of good gossip to be had. And she's got to get ready because she's going to go see Miss Tilney, which is a very important visit. She's much more excited to see Miss Tilney than she is to keep standing here and talking to Mr. Thorpe. So she hurries away. But she leaves him with the undivided consciousness of his own happy address and her explicit encouragement. So he is sure that she has basically just agreed to, like, marry him. Um, well, I mean, not like that he asked her to marry, but he's sure that she that she understands him. And that she is, if not agreeing to marry him, at least agreeing to the idea of letting him court her. And that she has given explicit encouragement in this. And Catherine is not at all aware that this has happened or that this conversation meant that at all. You can tell the whole time she is just trying to get away from him. She keeps saying goodbye. She's kind of like trying to be pleasant and agreeable. But he is trying to really get her to agree to marry him. And he thinks that she has basically agreed at this point, And she does not understand that that has just happened. So um, I'm sure that that will come up again. But we shall see. <laughs> and there's just a little bit left of this, la of this chapter. The agitation which she had herself experienced on first learning her brother's engagement made her expect to raise no inconsiderable emotion in Mr. and Mrs. Allen by the communication of the wonderful event. How great was her disappointment! The important affair, which many words of preparation ushered in, had been foreseen by them both ever since her brother's arrival, and all that they felt on the occasion was comprehended in a wish for the young people's happiness. With a remark on the gentleman's side in favor of Isabella's beauty, and on the ladies of her great good luck, it was to Catherine the most surprising insensibility. The disclosure, however, of the great secret of James's going to Fullerton the day before did raise some emotion in Mrs. Allen. She could not listen to that with perfect calmness, but repeatedly regretted the necessity of its concealment, wished she could have known his intention, wished she could have seen him before he went, as she should certainly have troubled him with her best regards to his father and mother and her kind compliments to all the Skinners. And so we end the chapter with Catherine rushing back to their lodgings to tell Mr. and Mrs. Allen about the engagement. And she is super disappointed because she was expecting to give them such a big surprise. And both of them had been expecting it this whole time. 
Which just, again, is going to prove how little, like, Catherine notices in some of this. Um, and how much is going over her head. Because the Allens are very aware that this has been kind of going on this whole time. That they expected this to happen ever since James showed up in Bath. And they're, they seem happy enough for the young couple. But they're not at all surprised. And Catherine is very surprised by that. Um, but it leads more credence to the idea that Isabella must was saying earlier in the chapter that Isabella must have known what was going on and known that there was something, you know, in the works with it because the Allens both noticed um, and were not at all surprised. So it makes sense that Isabella would, would assume that it was pretty common knowledge and easily understood by everybody if even the Allens have noticed and it's just Catherine who didn't get it who had not got the memo. The thing that does surprise Mrs. Allen is that James has gone off to Fullerton already and she wished that he, she would have known because she would have sent him with good wishes to people back in the neighborhood. And so she's a little upset about that, but not at all surprised about the engagement. Poor Catherine has kind of the thunder taken out of her with that, with that um, not being able to be so important with her news that she was all excited about. Because everybody's already anticipated it. And it's fine. So. He. So we end there. With the end of chapter 15. And the end of volume 1. So. Originally it was published in two different volumes. Um, instead of one book. So this would have been the end of the first book. First volume. So next time I will be back with volume two, chapter one, going into the second half of this novel. But just as an kind of a little bit overview, we are now, we have left, we leave volume one with a lot kind of up in the air, which makes sense. We've got Isabella and James recently engaged, but all this stuff about money kind of being talked about over and over again by her by Isabella's family by the Thorpes and we've also gotten lots of indications that the Thorpes think the Morelands are very rich or that maybe they'll get money from the Allens because Thorpe has brought that up with Isabella at least once so the Thorpes think that the Morelands have money and that's to me possibly part of why they're so excited about this engagement so once they get the actual details of this marriage settlement, they'll know a lot more about what the actual financial situation of the Morelands is. And I don't think that it's going to be up to what they are hoping it will be. So that's something that we'll need to watch for and be interested by. The other thing that's kind of up in the air is this sort of love triangle thing, only it's not really a love triangle because it's just Thorpe by himself and then... Catherine and Tilney are together, but we have that Catherine is still crushing on Mr. Tilney, that she's becoming friends with Miss Tilney, that the general seems to like her, that Mr. Tilney seems to be going along with this flirtation, though we don't know whether it's serious in any way at all. But we do have this idea that... John Thorpe is pretty 
blatantly, although again going over Catherine's head, making it clear that he wishes to court her or marry her. And we are pretty clear in Catherine's own mind that she's not interested in Mr. Thorpe at all. So we'll see if that comes up again or is of any interest in part two. Um, what happens with her relationship with Mr. Tilney, who we, we have been told by the narrator is the hero of the story. So we assume that he will be back. And then Thorpe, who has spent this entire first part of the book just getting in Catherine's way. We'll see if he continues to do that. Um, although at the moment he is left for London, so he's not in town currently, which is good. In my opinion, because I find him obnoxious. But all of these relationships are up in the air as we end volume one, the first half of the half of the book. And then we'll move on. So next time we will be back for volume two. Where hopefully we will get some answers to some of these questions. I will see you then. If you have anything you'd like to add, anything you'd like to disagree with or give your opinion on, Please get in touch. My email is imolcorner at gmail.com. That's in my own little corner at gmail.com. I'm also in, I, I'm my own, in my own little corner. I am corner. <laughs> Can't talk. In my own little corner. I am corner on, on Twitter. Um, definitely open to input on these episodes, on your opinions, on thoughts about Northanger Abbey or Jane Austen in general. And I will see you next time. Bye.